Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. And and it's not, you know, the most active time of the year. We're kind of in that limbo in between a couple of big film festivals and the end of the award season and the craziness of Cannes, but stuff is certainly happening in my neck of the woods here in New York. We had the opening night of new directors, new films, and there's a lot to discuss there, but as much as I'm excited to dig into this lineup, it actually what's interesting about it is that uh, many people who have been going to film festivals like you and me are not familiar with a lot of the films in this I have to say, movie. I went through. I looked at all 25 of them thinking I would come up with a few that I'd seen at Cannes. Or oh, of course you had, right. And they're in this particular, usually that's true. Usually I know a few of the films and I've often gone to see them. I've often gone to New York to see this, you know, a few films that are, that are playing in this lineup because they're, they're very well curated. But in this case, I haven't seen any of them. <laughs> and, and, the, and the, it's, I think there are a couple of really interesting reasons. I, I've seen some, but not all. And, um, in the past, I've seen more. I think there are, there are a what couple happens? of reasons. It's well, so just for the sake of context, you know, this is a section that has always sort of prided itself on heralding the new, and there it's got this amazing list of alumni. You know, people Spike like Spike Lee, Spielberg, George Lucas, stuff. all that stuff. You yeah. hear it every year, but what's kind of interesting is that. A lot of other festivals herald the new, too, right? Like, uh, Ryan Coogler breaks out at Sundance, so inevitably that's somebody who should be showcased uh, at New Directors or something like that. But actually, what, what's happened in the last few years with this section is that it's gotten increasingly more global. So once you get outside of the kind of narrative of breakouts that's fueled largely by Sundance and towards the end of the year at Toronto, you get a lot of other more interesting things in, in, in some ways because uh, you're seeing films that are being showcased to a large degree that are very non-commercial and outside the mainstream and made in different cultural contexts that uh, may yield really strong visions of new directors who are bringing something fresh to the table but they're not the kind of they don't adhere to the traditional narratives of big breakout stories and so this year's lineup is it's like I said, much more international, but I think also uh, a lot of variation in terms of styles. I mean, there's a movie that was in the international section at Sundance that very few people uh, saw, a Danish film called The Guilty that I liked quite a bit. That's uh, a guy, a police officer taking a 911 call. He's sort of stuck being a dispatcher, and it's basically just him in a room the whole time. This filmmaker, Gustav Mahler. Now, the international section at Sundance is not usually where you hear a lot about those breakouts because it's just not been a section that people pay a lot of attention to. So its presence in a, in a new director's context is very interesting because you can feel the hand of a curator who's picking through so many different kinds of heralded first-time filmmakers and finding something that is actually sort of on the margins and, and giving it fresh context in a So who like does this. curate this? It used to be Larry Kardish. It used to be a, a between the Film Society and MoMA. What is the current so that, that, lineup? That partnership continues. Larry Kardish hasn't been at MoMA in a long time, but uh, the, the museum is now... Uh, the film department is run by Rajendra Roy, and so it's that film film team in tandem with Lincoln Center and Dennis Lim 
takes a very active role on that side of things. And so you have a, a much more sort of, I think... Uh, so it's Dave Kerr now. Yeah, and I think there is a... But Dave Kerr is more on the, uh, on the archival side, but I do think there is more of a kind of a overt sort of cinephile orientation to the programming in the sense that it, it is trying to give you something you didn't expect rather than the opportunity to catch up with the breakout stories you've heard about from elsewhere. Though I have heard that uh, there was the, the possibility of uh, one big Sundance breakout playing at the festival, and that was Sorry to Bother You, which is a film I think may surface somewhere else down the line. A lot of times you hear about movies that are trying to go to Cannes, and they're not sure about doing right. another U.S. Well, festival. MIA was one of the Sundance titles. Yeah, so that ended it up being the opening night film. I missed it at Sundance, and I finally got a chance to check it out at the opening night, and um, I enjoyed it. I mean, what's really interesting about it is, I, I don't know in terms of, you know, as, as a piece of filmmaking, exactly what it benefits from being a part of this uh, this showcasing of new directors, because to a large degree, even though it's technically directed by MIA's longtime friend, Stephen Loveridge, who she went to art school with, uh, she is really the auteur of this thing. She kept all these really intimate video diaries about kind of, growing up and, and having this interesting identity crisis, uh, being Sri Lankan, but also Ameri you know, sort of um, oriented towards American hip-hop and, and uh, trying to develop this image of somebody who is both kind of a rebel and an activist and an artist at the same time. And it made me appreciate a lot about her, including when she danced with Madonna at the Super Bowl and flicked off the camera, which became this hilarious kind of, you know, uh, media brouhaha, but when you see it from her perspective, it, it shows you to the, the extent to which she felt so comfortable doing whatever she wanted that, that she, she was unaware of when something would be pushed so far that it would create this kind of chaos. And so you see her sort of learning how to be somebody in the public eye in a very up-close, intimate way. And the movie doesn't have distribution yet. So it actually is, I think, a very good thing that it got this slot because it gives it another kind of platform and a different framework than being one of a gazillion documentaries that Sundance might give it. So I do think that it's something people will get a lot out of and, and understand MIA a little bit more. And it's, it's a good piece of filmmaking. Uh, but it, it's, it's kind of fascinating to look at the lineup as a whole because there's so many other kinds of things there. I mean, you have... Uh, you know, narratives and documentaries. You have a four-hour Chinese film from a director who killed himself before it premiered at Berlin. You have... Uh, What's that called? It's, it's, it's called An Elephant Sitting Still, and, and no, I have not watched it yet. Um, but uh, then you have, you know, the experimental documentary about Jamaica and all, all, you know, kinds of shorts. And so it's, it's kind of neat to see these sort of programs find a way to push films that would ordinarily not break through the noise into their own framing and it, and it is sort of ideally timed in between a lot of yep. other kinds of things. No, that it's are always been on. an institution. So another institution of course is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and there was a bit of a kerfuffle there when after they put in their standards and practices it um, turned out that the first complaint that came in was the president himself, John Bailey. It was never cited who was complaining or how it turned out that one early report in Variety was inaccurate in the sense that there were was only one complaint. Um, and um, from what I've heard, um, 
uh, on the circuit. Um, it was a long time ago, but it, and and Bailey, you know, cited uh, some movie he was on where he was in a van and was supposed to have touched someone inappropriately. At any rate, uh, they the the membership committee headed by David Rubin, this guy who used to be. Uh, running against Bailey with Don Hudson behind him, the CEO of the Academy for uh, the presidency, uh, finally uh, came up and reported at the March 27th uh, governor's board meeting. And uh, they decided there was no reason to pursue this any further. And there was nothing to discuss. It was he was fine. He was innocent. He was good. He could go forward as president, and they're moving on. Uh, the the you know the really unfortunate thing is that it got leaked, and that this whole thing uh, kind of got talked about for a long time. And uh, well, we talked about it too. I mean, it's impossible not to because, irrespective of what the conclusion of this investigation was, it was the first and it was the first example of the academy wrestling with. Uh, the fact that it now has different kinds of protocol, that it has to be more responsive to these claims, and it raises other questions like, is there going to be some sort of audit of various members' past? You know, how, how often are these complaints going to come up? I mean, statistically speaking, you have thousands of people with all kinds of histories in the industry working with and lots people. of bad behavior yeah it's just inevitably <laughs> this know, is especially going to be on location thing. especially so, you know in the past so i'm i i would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall yeah. but what did emerge for me just in terms of all the academy members that i have been talking to over the past week is that the support for him was very strong and the sense that he was doing good work as the president of the academy was also palpable. And, um, so, uh, I, I think, uh, we, we, we move, we move on. Well, I have uh, heard that the guy has some enemies too. So it's not, you know, a hundred percent smooth sailing. It's, I, I'm sort of curious to see, you know, it's like political, it's fraught, like yeah, any, any exactly. game of survivor. Um, so, so basically, um, the other thing that came up this week, uh, uh you and I talked a little bit, uh, was, was, uh, Thierry Fouimeau, the head of the, uh, Cannes Film Festival, the director. Speaking of powerful men. <laughs> has also been, uh, dealing with a lot of questions about his new policies for this year's Cannes, which include, uh, changing the screening schedule so that, uh, in the internet age, we don't have reviews running. You critics are going to have to uh, have to ch see the movies that are going to be premiering there uh, at the same time so as the public. So it's important to explain and explain again and on and on and on why this is a big deal because Cannes is it has been locked into tradition for decades and decades. And even if you don't go, if you know or care about movies, you are aware of it and the kinds of films that come out of it and what it represents and and what is going on here could have a dramatic impact on the way that media operates and tells the world about this thing. Can thrive, even though it's, it's hell to be a media person, it can sometimes, it's exhausting, everyone's mean and, and it's crowded. It can 
thrives on the media hype. The, the, the media, is, it's, it's, it's not a public festival, and the media is, is a key part of, the, of, of what makes Cannes visible to the world and kind of contributes to its allure. And so there is a tremendous amount of frustration about this idea that critics now no longer are going to drive word of these films for right out of the game because they, that's that, that is one of the, is, is one of the concerns but the other they concern, aren't going to drive a reaction to a movie ahead of its public debut this is this in is other one words, of the exactly that they would see huge gap no but so that was a of time back but, in the print era in the print era it was possible to do it in the internet era all of that word goes out, and these people show up. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's a, there is tremendous no, but there's tremendous concern that that critics will no longer have the capacity to drive that conversation before the red carpet. But not only that, is that by virtue of making critics see the movie at the same time that it has its uh, red carpet premiere, they're also in this logjam because there will be two competition screenings at night: one at 7 p.m., one at 10 p.m. Some critics may be able to get tickets to both, but they're not going to be able to write about both, you know, back to back, essentially, which means that some of them are going to have to get up bright and early to see the movie at its first press screening. So you're going to have this constant sort of snowball effect where everybody's catching up. And I think there's also in this day and age, it's back going to in be the real world, though, in the in terms of the people reading it. They are back. First of all, remember that 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 830 screening in the morning was running in the middle of the night. If you ran, if you ran a, a review at 10.30 or 11 a.m. in the morning, it was the middle of the night back um, in North America. And if you do run it at 10 o'clock at night or, or 11 o'clock at night in Cannes, it will be in the middle of the day. In yeah, North I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I also think that this is that while and it may be aware of when everything what, is this screened. this may be beneficial on some level to to American press track will be but, better but well but that but remember that there aren't a lot of American press it can and and the decision by the French syndicate of cinema critics which started Critics Week the the uh, sort of smaller festival that takes place at the same time. To, to write a let, an open letter to Terry Fermo complaining about this, I think is pretty dramatic because this is a very influential group of people who really do, I think, contribute to the perception of Cannes in France. In the, and, and that is where there, there is a tremendous amount of uh, impact the festival has in terms of how the industry talks about uh, movies. And so I, th this is, it, it's hard to explain to people exactly how uh, significant this is because it really has to do with the media kind of grappling with just how relevant this festival chooses to see it in the conversation about movies. What you're really talking about is, is, is very apparent in the sense that it's from the point of view of what the power of a film critic is. And I think that just in terms of how people get reaction to the movies in Cannes, they will get it a little later. They will get it a little bit delayed. And, and it's going to make your job harder in terms of getting everything covered quickly. But in, in terms of how readers and industry people and people who care about Cannes, and by the way, that's a relatively small group, in the end, it's a small group. It could have impact on how movies get picked up. It could have impact on exactly. where they're going to be released. So I, here's what I would say: that uh, no, that is still a very small list. No, but I think it, I think it's a misguided assertion because you might say, okay, it's a small number of people who care about Cam, but it's actually 
it's a small number of people who directly care about can it's a large number of people who are who are affected by can and and care about the the impact of that the range of movies the way that those movies are perceived how things are talked about i'm not saying can has ever been a perfect system either i'm just not sure that this is necessarily the best potential solution to dealing with a very specific concern which has been for industry people who are working on these films that their red carpet has been rained on by earlier reactions now some it people also has to do with as i pointed out before it has to do with cherry Fremo wanting to be able to persuade studios and filmmakers yes, that's what to I'm show saying. up yes. on that red carpet yes, so he is and being pressured. get something positive out of it um, yes, the, that, that's that's exactly what is, I'm saying. But let me let me finish the thought here because I think there's an important point to be made here, which is that one of the arguments that has come up as an alternate means of addressing what we're talking about here is having an embargo, right? So critics see the movie in the morning; they can't write about it in, until nighttime. The the backup for that the argument or the the justification is that other major film festivals do it. One example that's been touted is Ber the Berlin Film Festival. Um, we've accidentally broken that embargo before. I see people tweeting after movies, so it is not a perfect system. It would have to be policed really intensely to the point where I would say, if Can, Can would have to basically say, if you tweeted about a movie before the embargo was lifted, we're taking your badge away or something like that. But the more that I think about it, it, they would never do that. I mean, it, the thing is that that is, and in some the train ways, has left the station. So now it's just an experiment to see how this system works. Yeah, and and on, but the, honestly, it's it's like it's so hard to get Can to change anything. I'm sort of right. curious about you know what was the straw that broke the camel's back here. You know, like it, it was there one specific reaction that upset a sales I think company it's been that was really important, time. or was it something? I, I got mean, into trouble with IFC when I when I when I wrote about the Oscar prospects for, uh, you know, on the road. But there, there were other examples, I'm sure. But it, there is something I think philosophically intriguing about all this, which is you know this is one of the only festivals where criticism is such a key dimension to its environment yes. and i and i'm I have just so I many of them in one place at one time just to see you know what this does to to that this year it'll it'll give us a sense of you know can yeah. you know how critics can actually stand out it may be less impactful than you think I'm, i think i think you're anxious about how to schedule competitively uh, with the i've uh, always uh, lived in terms and of anxiety and others have more people on the ground than IndieWire does. I can see why that would concern you. But, no, no, um, it's not I concerning think, to me. And I think that's it, not what I I'm think saying. It's a, it's a level playing field, it's, it's finally. Not, it's not me. It's not that I'm anxious. It's that it's a dramatic effect to the environment of Cannes itself. Look, I'll, I've, I've survived juggling a million different assignments at Cannes, you know, when I didn't have a full-time job at any specific publication. It's a place that forces you to work within an inch of your life and, uh, you know, it can be rewarding sometimes if you actually push beyond that and you feel like you you can justify it with the work you've put out there. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating process of getting closer to, to, to the deadline uh, process in a way. But I do think that it, it may or may not be good for these movies, especially if there are films that uh, are difficult and require more time to process that people are going to be working on tighter deadlines and they, that may not benefit 
the first word out on these films. Uh, it will be in so. distributors' interest in this situation to give the uh, critics with whom they have trusting relationships a chance to see the movie ahead of time and prepare a review ahead of time, which they've not been known to do in the past. Or show us and the movie early. Show, if that's you what trust I'm saying. Us, show, show us the movie, you know. And, uh, I bet there's an increase and, in that. I yeah. bet there's an increase in industry screenings ahead of the festival and during the festival. So outside of all this stuff, there are still movies coming out in theaters. We don't just watch movies when we go to film festivals. And this week, Ready Player One finally opens. And last time uh, we talked about it, we were sort of uh, looking ahead to uh, the way in which this movie might play out. Now we're just a little bit closer to that as we're recording. It's about to open. And... I don't really know what to make of it this. opened I had a... last night. Well, yeah, I guess actually. technically it, it has opened. It had. Um, it had. It, in fact, I think one of our people in the office went to see a seven o'clock show last night, and there was nobody in the theater. So there's been a lot of concern about how this movie was going to actually play, and whether it was going to generate um, a big uh, reaction. And the word seems to be it's going to do a twelve million dollar opening day and about 52 to 55 million on the four day that's an estimate um so it seems to be a pretty solid uh bow and it's already earned about 3.2 million internationally um so we'll see we'll see whether this is enough it's an expensive movie it's, it's not a, a it's not going to be 90 million dollars it's not a huge it's not going to be a phenomenon it's not going to be black panther i mean it just it's impossible no! to fathom God, no. that and which Nobody is why, yeah, but I mean, when you look at the dialogue around it, you know, it's a Spielberg movie. This guy's name has been for so long synonymous with commercial successes. Clearly, we have entered another era in which that's not quite the same thing. I mean, I think well, we're sort of. he hasn't had the level of success that he once, he once commanded in a, in a long time. I mean, we did uh, a ranking. Um, and realized uh, that it, I think the War of the Worlds was the last really big movie that he's done. Yeah, um, I know, but I mean, it's it's sort of like the the there's there's the specific movies, and then there's the allure, the the sense that this name carries that kind of commercial weight. And I wonder how, how the release of Ready Player One will affect that. I like the movie quite a bit. You know, it's it, it's not perfect, but it's certainly. One of the more satisfying movies made on this scale I've seen in a while, and I, I think, was you know, eager to see it a second time, and I, I, I that doesn't happen that often. But it's I, a weird I, movie. I'd like to it's see a it weird again. movie. And when you think about what's going on in this in this film, the the kind of it's very you know, dense. It's dense. It's got it's got a lot of rules to it, it and obviously all these references, and it uses those references as plot points. I mean, if you came from a to uh, uh, you'd, uh, say a, a very um, religious household where you weren't allowed to watch movies and TV growing up, you might not even understand a lot of, of a lot of that stuff. And so I am sort of curious what sort of currency Ready Player One has for uh, for large swaths of audience, given how much it's playing off of an awareness of different kinds of uh, pop culture um, touchstones. But um, I'm, well, I'm glad it exists. Well, it's a classic sort of zero to hero journey, and I think that in that sense, there's a 
there's a real um, story to follow, a romance to root for, a group of people going up against a corporate evil overlord played deliciously by Ben Mendelsohn, and extraordinary visual scenes, um, you know, the races, the challenges, the final battle dominated by the Iron Giant silhouette against the horizon. I mean, there's such great, great visual stuff. And it uses all the stuff he learned and read. You know, I was not a huge fan of Tintin. I was not a huge fan of the BFG. These are visual effects movies that were not satisfying. In fact, the BFG is one of the few movies he's made that didn't make money along with, uh, I think, AI, which I loved. This is a lot like AI in some ways. Yeah, I mean, AI is, is sort of the, the twisted dystopian variation on this. I mean, you could this argue that it, it aspect. does, but it's but it's uplifting ultimately in a way that AI never quite becomes because it's got that Kubrick DNA in it in a much you know more precise way throughout. I mean, the it's it's very we're not allowed to discuss it, but there is some Kubrick DNA. There in is, but it's a different well. in a very different kind of way. It's more about Kubrick homage, whereas AI was actually developed by. Kubrick in a way but I, in, in any and, case and, I, I'm and curious. Spielberg wrote that screenplay to himself. To me it's like I think that Ready Player One will become almost like a cult object itself like the things that its characters treasure over the years uh, kind of like what happened with Blade Runner 2049 it won't be that much of a, of, a, of a dud but I do think both movies are playing off of existing properties and are going to become themselves kind of these interesting things that are a little bit too strange or, or out of step with what all audiences want to see, but will continue to be appreciated with time. And, you know, as as a critic and somebody who likes the art form, I, I'm, I'm glad it exists, even if it doesn't totally work commercially. But we shall see, and next week we can get into that. If it doesn't work totally commercially, it'll be because of its cost, which is the same problem with Blade Runner 2049. And so many other things. And it may also skew older, and that's going to be an interesting question. I'm going to be fascinated by what the demographics are, who actually shows up. My daughter went to see it last night with a group of friends. I haven't checked in with her yet, but it's 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 really going to be a question of, of how many people want to see it who are young and how many people are willing to see it a second time like I was. But I'm not the target audience and should not be. No, and and um, and I'm not sure that the target audience is necessarily going to engage with every aspect of this movie that's so impressive. The, the but it's really about their real lives. It's about having uh, alternative kind of. persona in social media. It's about worrying about that. It's about what you do um, online as opposed to what you do in your real life. I think that that's really the message that uh, Spielberg is trying to get across. And it's really not about all the references as much as it is about what your life is like. Yeah. No, it, it'll be interesting to see how, how people actually what they glean from this film and, and, you know, at what point is someone going to drop a think piece saying that it's way too uh, much about a white man's vision of the world or something like that. Cause I do feel like there is something about, you know, the, the way in which we, we, it, it's a very specific template that even though it plays off of nostalgia or maybe because of it, it's a little out of sync with our times, but it's very good filmmaking at the end well, of the day. Well, I actually think the filmmakers and and uh, the, the screenwriters, Klein, who wrote the book, and Zach Penn, uh, changed it up quite a bit. They, they brought the women farther forward. They distinguished uh, among the different uh, high-five characters and made them different from what they were in the book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, changes here. The, the, act, the character played by Olivia Cook. um 
Artemis, Samantha, is way more active and way more important to the whole uh, resolution of the movie than she was in the book. So maybe there were some improvements made. Yeah, well, we shall, we shall see how the, the audiences respond. In the meantime, if anyone's looking for counter-programming, uh, we both saw this movie, Outside In, that's coming out uh, from Lynn Shelton, and uh, it has no weird futuristic CGI <laughs> premise of any sort unless you count Jay Duplass and Edie Falco in some capacity as, as being, uh, you know, sci-fi because you'd never expect them to be a couple in, in real life. But uh, I oh, think it's, it's a very well-acted really movie. Well. Yeah, it's beautifully acted. Shelton has been putting in her time on television. She's worked on New Girl and Mad Men was the first one, and then she got lots and lots of work. Uh, she's just totally in demand, and she went back after... Uh, Laggies was her last movie in 2014, and she went back and and she works out of Seattle, and she made this movie up there as she usually does, and she um, finally was just so much more comfortable and happy and confident and serene uh, shooting this movie, and it shows it's really good. And Jay Duplass, who, whose brother Mark uh, played a role in Hump Day, and uh, your sister's sister, he is uh, the, the front and center this time. I mean, they produced the movie, The Duplasses, but he co-wrote it with her and, and gives a really good performance. I mean, Edie Falco is no, no surprise. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the thing to point out, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about those two earlier movies because it's, you know, Hump Day and Your Sister's Sister were comedies. They, they reached for a certain emotional resonance, but they were comedies. This is very much a straight it's drama. Her first drama. Well, yeah, it's, first it's it's not her first. I mean, if you if you count um, some of the stuff of Touchy Feely, for example, was not you know as, as that's a, a comedy. Eh, it, was, it had more dramatic elements. Her first drama. Yeah, I mean, her, I I would disagree uh, with with her assessment on that front. I mean, I I think she's been sort of reaching her way towards more dramatic territory in the last few movies. I think this one crystallizes her dramatic instincts more than the last few movies. Um, I do miss some of the humor, and and and, I, and I, I wouldn't say put it on quite the same level as Hump Day, but it is a great actor showcase, and she she's very talented. So you know, if you, if you like any of the people involved with this thing, I think you'll come away being satisfied Shel- with it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, Lynn Shelton is one of those women directors, and she t- she was uh, talking to me about how she learned a lot of action stuff and, you know, assembling action sequences and shooting childbirth and, you know, stunts and stuff like that. And when she was on all these different television shows that she, she did, um, I think there's an, you know, there's an argument for her being the kind of filmmaker that Hollywood should be looking at when uh, they keep saying that there aren't any film directors that they can hire who know yeah. how to do yeah, I mean, She's if, one of them. if Hollywood needs Lynn Sheldon and Lynn Sheldon wants to go to Hollywood, that would be a nice symbiotic relationship. On the other hand, sometimes it's nice to see these filmmakers just doing their own thing on their own dime and, or their own time with the uh, with the resources that are brought to them. So Well, then there yeah. are others who would argue that they'd rather see Ava DuVernay not yeah. doing a I, big well, I, budget I, I Hollywood agree. Exactly, exactly, exactly right there. I mean, do I want to see Lynn Sheldon's Star Wars? I mean... It's no, a funny no, idea, but probably about not. That. In any case, next week we'll we'll dig more into this Ready Player One situation. We'll have a bunch of other stuff opening Chappaquiddick. You were never really here, so I'm sure we'll have plenty to dig into as we continue to fill the void in between these festivals. In the meantime, have a good weekend in, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye, Eric.